This is Lex Kibernetica, the cyber law podcast by the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. Lex Kibernetica. In November 2015, James Andrew Bates hosted a football party at his Arkansas home, which ended with one dead guest in the hot tub. Police investigation found an Amazon Echo in the kitchen and asked Amazon for any recording which may have occurred during the fatal event. Amazon declined, claiming that they hadn't received a, quote, valid and binding legal demand properly served to us, unquote. But later conceded as Bates, who pleaded not guilty, said he doesn't object to releasing the files. Arkansas prosecutors later dropped the case. Ever-developing surveillance technologies aggravate the threat to our human rights. Let's elaborate on human rights in the digital age. Hi, uh, my name is Ilya Svetica. I am a research fellow at the Geneva Academy of International Humanitarian Law and Human Rights. And uh, I am an attorney at law in Athens Bar Association in Greece. And your research focuses on human rights in the digital age. And we're talking about surveillance today. Surveillance obviously can hurt uh, human rights, but what's specifically in the world of digital surveillance? The two came closer together uh, when uh, Edward Snowden in 2013 disclosed uh, the numerous global surveillance programs run by the National Security Agency of the U.S., and in collaboration with telecommunication companies and European governments. And then this was the moment where actually the human rights world more clearly than ever and realized the connection between uh, human rights, especially right to privacy and freedom of expression and the new surveillance methods that are used in the digital age. Uh, it is clear today that surveillance programs are capable of tracking our movements at every single moment. And it's possible to uh, run through a, a huge bulk of communications and identify specific topics that they are discussed. And this is new both for the surveillance agencies and for the human rights world. And so the limitations or the way to handle these new possibilities uh, is something that uh, is still to be explored. So the problem is, it's not only that it is possible to uh, surveil a certain person, it's uh, possible, and it, it, it is actually done, to surveil a large amount of people and then retroactively fish for information in the database of the surveilled information, uh, email conversations, chats, phone conversations, and find something that you need. No, exactly. This is one of the big issues right now, because until now, the law predicted uh, on the spot uh, interference with communication. So your phone would be tapped and then for this particular period of time. And you would have to get like a warrant from a judge. Yes, in the most countries. not in, I mean, from one country to the next, that could differ, but there was some form of oversight. The problem becomes larger today, broader today, because uh, social media platforms and other service providers are actually collecting the data either in order to uh, provide the service to us or because they want to improve the services or for advertisement. Like in the United States, where the internet service providers no longer need your permission to use your uh, serving data, they can just sell it, uh, use it, do whatever they want with it. 
Well, and the U.S. is fortunately for now uh, the exception to that. But uh, when it comes also to surveillance, the problem is that you might have given your data to be used for commercial purposes, but then all of a sudden the government has access to things you said 10 years ago. So this creates a completely different way of monitoring people's behavior. And while it might be often necessary to do that, uh, no one doubts that, on the same time, there is very, very little awareness from the data subjects that this is happening. From us? Yes. But this all should be governed by laws. Uh, what's the problem with the laws or with the legal framework uh, of uh, surveillance? Well, uh, there are multiple levels. First of all, uh, in most countries, surveillance laws are outdated. So they would predict what's happening when they want to open a written letter. But I don't think that messages and emails can be equated to a private handwritten letter. So that's already a first problem. Then the second problem is that there is very little transparency on what has been happening until very recently. And it's unfortunate that whistleblowers were necessary in order to start the conversation to begin with. How have international actors uh, responded to the problem of massive surveillance over the years? So, uh, unfortunately, when it comes particularly to UN agencies, for instance, the response has been very slow. Uh, it only started particularly after 2013 and going back again to Snowden. And then it was, for instance, the Special Rapporteur on Freedom of Expression that produced a report detailing certain practices that are no longer occurring in one country, but actually have been copied to most of the countries around the world that can acquire that technology. So we're talking about targeted communications surveillance, mass communication surveillance, access to communications data, and uh, internet filtering and censorship. So they've been slowly starting to group together certain practices, but uh, they haven't been as quick in suggesting solutions uh, to these problems. And uh, one of maybe the most uh, recent reports of the current Special Rapporteur on Freedom of Expression are probably more on the spot tackling a very specific issue, which is the increasing policing of our communications by actually private companies and not by governments, which adds an additional layer of surveillance. So today, uh, some of the media tech companies, the global ones, uh, sometimes have more information about us than our government, our police, our intelligence services, and even ourselves. Uh, they collect data and they analyze data and they know more about us than anybody else. Data profiling is something that they're increasingly specializing on, and there it comes. They know more than we know about ourselves. And sometimes the information from those companies uh, goes to other players, other actors, whether by a breach or um, complacency or uh, intentionally. Like Cambridge Analytica got the uh, information about Facebook users or Facebook provides information to um, law enforcement based on warrants or secret warrants. Or even because uh, the um, flagging units of the government simply flag the content as um, illegal, 
and got it removed by passing the entire uh, legal request uh, uh, system. So they don't have to go to court to ask something to be removed. They just talk to Twitter or Google or YouTube or any other company and tell them, please remove this. And here in Israel, most of the requests are abided by. Most of the government's requests. Yeah, that was a recent uh, report on Israel and Facebook relationship. And uh, that's true. And uh, the problem with what information Uh, the governments can ask companies to acquire or remove is that uh, the companies have acquired an additional method for uh, removing content, for instance, by flagging, uh, by user flagging the illegal content, and then the either an automated filtering system or a human moderator will then actively delete the content. It's not even necessarily illegal. It's uh, something the country objects, but doesn't have to be illegal. And then the uh, governments have increasingly been taking advantage of this new method and they're creating their own flagging units. And they even reportedly have signed trusted flagging agreements with the companies, which means that the content is removed on the basis of the terms of use of the private company by passing the entire oversight national legal system. So information that is not necessarily illegal is being removed because the company wants to be in good terms with the country, while the citizen, the user, uh, doesn't get a, his or her rights for freedom of expression, for having their day in court. And this is something that in Israel was reported that the authorities actually reported that most of the requests that they sent for data removal uh, are abided by. Yeah, and uh, yes, that, uh, and I'm pretty sure Israel won't be the only country that this is happening, but uh, probably one of the few that that has been leaked. And what's interesting is that the commercial companies have actually created the transparency reports before the governments. Yes, but uh, they are, uh, let's remember that they are reporting only on the legal requests of uh, removing And only contact. numbers. And only numbers, and they are not, for instance, uh, reporting on requests for removal on the basis of the terms of use, which means that we, we know only a very, very tiny amount of government requests that have been uh, made. In your opinion, what is uh, the solution or solutions to the problem of mass surveillance, uh, which hurts freedom of expression and privacy? Uh, well, uh, one of the first things we need to do is try to disentangle to get a sense of where our communications are going right now. You mentioned before that right now in the U.S. our data can be sold to companies and then these are sold to another company and it goes on and we have absolutely no idea uh, where they're going to end up. So I think one of the first things one needs to do is start mapping the trail of uh, data, and this is no easy exercise because from one country to the other, this is completely different. And then while these are multinational companies have been coming much, much better in actually compartmentalizing uh, the way they handle data from one jurisdiction to the next. This means that someone that lives in the European Union gets a completely different protection than someone living in the US or China, where increasingly data are stored in the country and they're easily accessible. So uh, 
we we need to start getting a better understanding of what is happening in a, in a more global level and then the next step would be to engage in a, an alternative regulatory method where all the different actors are involved and this is something governments and companies are not used to but we need to put on the table governments companies civil society actors independent experts we need to have them all together in order to find a common regulatory system that would uh, accommodate all the different sides of the problem do you think it's in the interest of the uh, governments and companies to do that since <laughs> since the companies get to collect information analyze it sell it uh, monetize it and the governments get easy access cheap easy access to all that information about us well I don't know if they're interested in but uh, one thing I'm hopeful for is public opinion that has managed to uh, push both governments and companies in the past to change behaviors and I think we need to be more outspoken about it because uh, this is something they definitely respond to if the general public is not uh, is asking questions then the questions eventually need to be answered. What can Israel learn from other countries in this field? My name is Amir Kahana. I'm from the uh, cyber and law program in the Hebrew University of Jerusalem and from the Israeli Democracy Institute. And uh, my main uh, research interest is uh, online surveillance law in Israel. Can you tell us about the framework of the Israeli online surveillance law? Well, basically, it could be described as a two-by-two two matrix where um, one uh, aspect of that matrix will be defined by the type of data, content uh, data or uh, metadata, which means it's information about your communications without content. It's about the parties involved, involved in the communication. It's about the time of the communication. It could be also... details such as uh, location data. If you're using a handheld device, then uh, the uh, location of that device are um, URLs used if you're logging in into certain uh, dubious or, or, or non dubious or, or not obvious websites. Uh, these also could be uh, considered as uh, uh, metadata generally speaking. Uh, so, This is one aspect of uh, uh, the Israeli laws. They, uh, they differentiate uh, based on the um, type of the data. The second aspect is um, the purpose of the collection of that data. Um, and uh, there are different rules uh, applying to uh, the collection and, and interception of uh, uh, communication for uh, law uh, enforcement uh, purposes. Uh, and different sets of rules that apply for um, national security purposes. So generally speaking, the rules tend to be more lax and less restrictive when we're uh, dealing with the collection of metadata rather than uh, of the content of the communication. So for example, the laws uh, for obtaining a wiretap warrant for uh, national security purposes, Uh, allow for such warrant to be obtained without any uh, judicial review. That is, the head of the ISA, the Israel Security Agency, also known as the Shabak, submits a request uh, to the minister, either 
the prime minister or uh, the defense minister. And the request itself is reviewed only by the minister rather than by a judge or any other judicial tribunal. Whereas warrant application for the purposes of law enforcement or uh, any other kind of uh, police investigations are subject to a judicial review held by a magistrate judge. Generally speaking, metadata was considered to be less revealing than uh, the content of the communication. It's the difference between the inside of the envelope, the letter itself, and the address details on the outside. However, this might be less relevant in this day and age where the ability of one to uh, control the metadata gathered by his handheld devices that follow him everywhere, this ability is uh, diminishing. And analysis of uh, metadata uh, usually is more revealing about one's behavior and attitude than uh, his expressed opinions. This is true because of the different kinds of metadata that are collected, how vast they are, and the ability of um, computerized systems to analyze that data and extract a lot of information from it that they didn't used to be able to. Quite so. And, and this is a trend we're seeing worldwide. A couple of years ago, committee members, uh, which uh, conducted a report for the British government about online surveillance in the UK, mentioned they were surprised uh, to find out that uh, the secret services found that metadata is usually more valuable to them than actual content, uh, probably because it's more vast and more revealing than content. And what is wrong, in your opinion, with the Israeli online surveillance laws? First of all, there's not one comprehensive piece of legislation uh, fully detailing what is allowed and what is prohibited within the practices of online surveillance. Is this uh, common in other countries as well? We can, we can see more and more countries uh, addressing these issues uh, in a more comprehensive manner. Um, the, the British Investigatory Powers Act uh, is an example of one piece of legislation that should be a one-stop shop that uh, addresses all kinds and practices of online surveillance, and there's nothing similar in the Israeli law. Secondly, uh, the uh, Israeli law uh, fails to address uh, many issues that have solution abroad. There is no provision in the Israeli law uh, uh, regarding data retention, that is, the uh, duty uh, of any uh, communication service provider to uh, retain and to save uh, data of either metadata or content data. Of like the communication, communication companies, the internet uh, service providers, telephony companies. Exactly. So data retention is usually uh, uh, stated as a duty, but uh, it, this duty to save uh, communications for f possible future uh, access by law enforcement agencies or uh, national security agencies is usually limited uh, temporarily, which means that national law may contain uh, any kind of provisions that may require um, service providers to retain either data or metadata, uh, but uh, the retention period is limited. And Israeli law does not address that issue and most certainly does not provide for uh, any temporal limitations on data retention. So basically, any company can keep information as long as it wants or get rid of information 
when it wants. Exactly. So it helps neither the citizens nor the government. Exactly. Another issue that is not found in Israeli law is mass surveillance. Um, there is no uh, provision uh, either prohibiting mass surveillance uh, totally or allowing it uh, under several restrictions, either allowing for bulk collection of data in situation where there might be, for example, strict necessity or uh, for national security purposes or any kind of um, caveats uh, that will allow this practice, but uh, only to the extent necessary. Another aspect that the uh, uh, Israeli online surveillance law framework might be found to be problematic is the partial ju- judicial scrutiny. What does it mean? As I've described before, uh, not all um, online surveillance practices uh, are subject to uh, the review of the judge authorizing them uh, beforehand. That means that uh, the ISA, for example, uh, may uh, obtain metadata uh, without any review made by a judge. Uh, and it is allowed to do so under the uh, ISA law. The same way, uh, the ISA is also uh, free of any uh, judicial overview uh, when it comes to uh, wiretap orders. As again, as described before, um, Wiretaps orders are not subject to uh, judicial review, but to a ministerial review, which uh, supposedly allows them more uh, wiggle room, which supposedly may provide for more violations of uh, privacy or, or individual privacy. It seems that this is not unintentional, but it's easier for those um, authorities to uh, not have set rules, not have judicial oversight. How do you suggest fixing that framework uh, so it's better for us, the citizens, as well as the security of the country? To begin with, uh, judicial scrutiny is not necessarily the best mechanism to provide for oversight of uh, intelligence agencies. Judicial review is always uh, reactive. It suffers from certain lack of expertise in matters of intelligence, for example. There's also the possibility that the uh, judicial review will be no more than a rubber stamp. Uh, And we can see that from uh, data accumulated uh, uh, in connection with the judicial review of police uh, wiretap warrants in Israel and in the States. From both jurisdictions, we can uh, see that approximately less than 1% of uh, the application for judicial warrants for online surveillance for police purposes are uh, rejected by courts. So it's not necessarily the watchdog we hope for. However, judicial review can serve as a mitigating factor. It can incentivize the uh, authorities requesting a warrant to uh, better detail and better uh, design the uh, their surveillance practices, provided that along alongside with the uh, judicial reviews, there are uh, additional uh, oversight uh, mechanisms. What what kind of mechanisms? Maybe it is worth considering um, the establishment of uh, an independent oversight body, similar to the UK uh, model of the Investigatory Powers Act uh, Commissioner. Or if we'll uh, look at uh, European uh, models uh, like the uh, data protection authorities. So such, um, such an independent authority, if provided with 
proper uh, discretion uh, uh, to oversee the activities of the uh, intelligence intelligence agencies and or the uh, police uh, uh, online surveillance activity. Such body could um, provide for a more comprehensive review of uh, the legality of such activities and uh, the um, efficacy of them. Um, because, for example, uh, judicial tribunals rarely are able to address questions of uh, efficacy of uh, any intelligence gathering. Do you think surveilling bodies in Israel enjoy a gray area where they can operate without clear rules? Some of the surveillance bo- surveilling bodies have uh, a certain gray area that they enjoy. It is uh, either because of uh, secret rules that govern their practices and are not uh, made public. And some of it is because under regulation, uh, which means that there's not enough specificity in uh, Israeli legislation, and these bodies basically uh, rely on a very slim body of law, which they interpret as they will. These interpretations, of course, are not necessarily made public. Britain was mentioned several times by the former interviewee. Let's talk about what happens there in this field. In a gist, it's far from great. Hi, my name is Pete Fussy. I'm a professor of sociology at the University of Essex in the UK. So what is uh, your research about? Okay, so we're researching the ways in which uh, police agencies, law enforcement, national security uses of digital technology, particularly to for surveillance operations and surveillance practices. Are you looking to see if they are working in accordance with the law or the different laws and different implementations? I think both really. One of the issues um, with a lot of these kind of police uses of technology is that The first question you ask is, is there a legal basis? What we're finding, um, and a lot of other research in this area finds, is that one of the main problems is a lot of the law was authored in a pre-digital era, what we could call a pre-digital era. So certainly, you know, if you think about the last 10 years with widespread kind of adoption of smartphone technology and the way in which data is more and more embedded in our everyday lives. So often you know, police forces, there may be a legal basis for doing things, but then there becomes a whole sense of practical kind of ambiguities, how, how to put someone under surveillance, how to use that technology, whether it's lawful, whether it's in the spirit of the law, whether things are proportionate and, and things like that. So for example, Uh, in the UK in law there's a clear distinction between um, between over and covert policing for example or you know between targeted and non-targeted surveillance so in the past if um, you wanted to put somebody under surveillance you might park a car outside the house or monitor their communications and, and so on and that would require a procedure to be followed and, and a series of legal standards and approvals now you In the world of ubiquitous social media what does that mean if a police officer is checking somebody's Facebook every five minutes or, or so on at what point does that then become um, a directed surveillance at what point does that become covert surveillance as it is on the one hand uh, public data yeah and on the other hand personal private data that yeah, exactly. just happens to be in the public sphere exactly so to follow somebody through the streets you know is is they, they are kind of existing in a public realm but you still have a right to privacy so there needs to be some kind of guidance and safeguard on when that threshold is crossed um, particularly prevention from harassment and all of those kind of things as well 
And what have you learned from your research? A number of things. It's ongoing. I think there is this regulatory gap, uh, certainly. Um, one of the principal issues, I think, is we often have an assumption about how technology works, but actually the way technology works is shaped by particular operation environments, particular practices, and so on. And those are the spaces really where, where regulation should work. It has to be more specific, like talking about specific social networks or phone operating systems. Yeah, so that's that's one of the key challenges we, you know, we're wrestling with as well as other people. How specific should regulation, oversight and law be? So on the one hand, you can try and future-proof what you do by establishing general principles. But apparently this didn't happen in the past. Yeah, and also the problem with that is, as well is it becomes too vague and then you get all of this room for interpretation. So to give an example of that, in forensic science, there are rules you know, about how you deal with, with evidence and DNA samplings and so on. When you talk about digital forensics, They've got these broad principles, but then it becomes much more problematic if you're looking through someone's phone as a police officer, if you encounter an email with a lawyer, legal privilege and things like that. So the, the more general and future proof you get, then you open up these spaces for interpretation, which are problematic. So that, I think that's kind of one of the big problems. Two further issues that I think are particularly pressing is that we don't have a clear understanding of the harm of surveillance. As citizens, as users. Yeah, exactly. So as citizens, so we talk very much about issues around privacy, but we don't really extend that into thinking about other forms of harm. So what people would call the chilling effect, for instance. So it might be that you decide not to go into a protest or express yourself in a particular way on social media through fear of surveillance. And it's quite hard to prove that something didn't happen for a particular reason. Um, so we're looking at developing more robust measures of that. And I think the other thing that's, that's certainly changed and is really problematic now is the idea of reasonable suspicion or probable cause that they're called in the US. You know, we talk about things like bulk monitoring and, and bulk communications. So you lose that kind of specificity, that purpose for conducting the surveillance. It becomes more speculative because we live in such a data-rich environment. So you can just go fish in the data and find something that you weren't necessarily looking for. Yeah, exactly. But in order to do that, that requires some kind of observation of large numbers of people, almost all of whom will be law-abiding and doing nothing wrong. So it's like you could take big data and use it to find a specific possible criminal, but maybe you've breached the privacy of all the other people who are not criminals or potential criminals. Yes, yeah, so exactly. So there's two concepts that would really come into play there. One is obviously proportionality um, and the other, which often gets missed out in these conversations, but is equally important or a part of proportionality is the idea of collateral intrusion, you know, kind of the other people that, that get engaged with that. But, and also, you know, it depends on the type of offence you're, you're talking about. You know, in some circumstances, you can make a, an argument that it's worth, you know, intruding the privacy of lots of people, depending on the severity. In the UK, we would argue in the, in the research we've done, that threshold's pretty low. So you can get bulk powers can be used in cases where of what, what the government defines serious crime, which is a crime in which you could receive a custodial sentence for three years or more. And there's quite a lot of ways you could go to prison for three years that, that don't constitute what most people would, would clarify or, or, or deem serious crime. 
Has your research gone into looking at the tools that are available to citizens, to users, to people to circumvent uh, surveillance? That's not been a central focus of our research, but there's an emerging market on counter surveillance tools people are using, you know, particular phone sleeves, for instance, sleeves for their smartphones. So they're, they're Faraday cages. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, even to the extent that one of the big debates in the last few weeks in the UK, particularly in, in London, in the city I live in, has been about the use of automated facial recognition software. And there's a whole market in anti-face recognition, makeup and, and things like that as well. So, yes, I mean... Have you actually seen people uh, uh, put makeup that circumvents the, the facial recognition systems? I've, I've seen it advertised, but like many corporate adverts, you know, that, that doesn't necessarily have to be effective for people to make claims <laughs> that it is. So. If, if it's yeah. a service that people are willing to pay for, that's uh, uh, proof enough that it's something that, that bothers people. Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, these markets have a long history, you know, think back to, you don't have to think very far back to, you know, kind of um, ways in which you can circumvent, you know, random drug tests uh, and urine samples and things like that. I used to work in a prison before being an academic and, you know, there's a thriving <laughs> industry in, in ways to avoid drug testing, for instance. So, um, so I think ways of sort of evading surveillance have, have always existed, Um but it's, yeah, it is interesting to see how this kind of growing market in anti-surveillance technology, and, you know, it's kind of Apple, you know, one of the, the massive tech giants has actually predicated one of its uh, selling points on exactly that issue. It protects privacy, whereas Google and Amazon don't. What fuels the overuse or growing use of um, mass surveillance technologies? Is it technology? Is it politics? Is it our being on social networks and using cellular phones and giving out so much data that somebody has to collect because it's out there? Yeah, that, that's an excellent question. And I think the answer to that is slightly complex in that there's always been a political motive to conduct surveillance. You know, the spread of one of the most visible forms of surveillance in the UK, the surveillance cameras, CCTV cameras, was highly politically driven through the 1990s because law and order and crime were, were huge political issues at the time and, and media issues and issues of public concern. Having said that, yes, things have changed since then. We do live in an environment where people give up and elicit a lot of data about themselves. I think one of the errors that's often made in this debate is that that process, that activity is sometimes seen in a way that to suggest that young people or people who use a lot of social media don't care about privacy, and, and they do. You know, there is a spectrum here. Why you would, might want to engage on social media or a social media platform is part of your everyday socialisation. You still have every right to privacy. And those same people would not consent to, you know, unauthorised images of themselves being being shared and so on so we have to maybe attenuate what we what we think about these things but it doesn't mean that you lose your right in in some way do you feel as a criminologist that mass surveillance deters more crimes uh, yeah i'm skeptical uh to the extent about deterrence i mean the literature and research on deterrence is it's mainly confined to looking at, at prisons and sentencing and things like that, but the literature on deterrence and all the academic research suggests that deterrence isn't a very, very strong motivator for people's behaviour. So, for example, 93% of murderers are caught and convicted in the UK. The murder rate stays stable. So, you know, if you were about to commit a murder, you would there is almost a certainty you will get caught and go to jail for it, but people still murder. 
So, and you can apply this logic across lots of different crime types. People don't not commit crime because of, because of the existence of particular surveillance mechanisms. I mean, activities get displaced maybe over time or to different type or, or whatever. But I'm very skeptical about the arguments around deterrence, and they've they've not really got the evidence to back them up. I would argue. So why do they continue pushing it? Is it uh, to maintain the security theater or are there other reasons that they're not telling us for the collection of data? So there's a symbolic value, definitely. So the term security theater, I mean, that, that applies, you could argue. There, there is also operational benefit. So there is an argument that, you know, that states have a responsibility to uphold the safety and security of their citizens. That's That's enshrined in the UN Declaration of Human Rights. You know, state, states, you could argue, would be remiss if they didn't use these technologies. So the question really then becomes, if there is a legal basis for using the technologies, how can they use them within the law and according to, you know, the various principles of rights and ethics and so on. Um, so, yeah, it's it's difficult to establish exactly the benefits. You know, if you take the intelligence context, for instance, there have been, in, what, in the publicly available data that exists, There is evidence that they do help with convictions and so on. They are a tool. It's difficult to isolate their benefit from all the other tools that are being used, but that is not to say that they're, they're not useful. So, of course, they have value for people conducting security. Um, I think that's, yeah, I'm convinced by that. I mean, I'm less convinced by some of the arguments about mass deterrence, and I'm even less convinced about the arguments around prediction, that you can use them to predict how people will behave in the future. And how do you or your research uh, suggest using technologies, existing technologies, without hurting privacy, freedom of expression, etc.? Yeah, I think um, in the first instance, I would say the most important thing is to have a strong understanding of harm. Um, so the harms of these technologies in terms of privacy expression and so on are quite easily dismissed a lot of the time. Um, when people talk about the trade-off between security and And rights, for instance, what most people mean when they say they're willing to give up their rights for security is that they want the security and they're willing to trade other people's rights because they're not the people who are, who are subjected to these, these techniques. So, but they are. <laughs> yeah, so, but, you know, in terms of, if you look at where surveillance techniques, for instance, are applied, they're generally on the people who don't have a political voice, people on the margins of society and people excluded in, in various forms and so on, certainly in the UK. Um, so I'd say that, You need a strong legal basis, you need strong oversight mechanisms, transparency as, as much as possible, and an ongoing review of potential harms that has to be brought into it, into the, the conversation. So a classic issue around this that we've really found in our research is around the, issue, the way proportionality is formulated. Often when you talk to law enforcement agencies, they will say, Uh, what they're doing is proportionate. And what they mean is it's proportionate to what they want to do, <laughs> not proportionate to the harm it can cause, which is what proportionality should be applied to. Um, and so the need, again, it returns this more detailed understanding of what are the harms of these techniques. And there, there should be the obligation on the people who use those techniques to, to understand those and to account and accommodate them. All that, all the necessary changes or um, rules of conduct... Can they be attained only through public pressure? Yeah, I think um, no, it, needs, it needs a range of different approaches. It needs you know, a public civic voice within those processes. It needs a legal oversight and it needs parliamentary scrutiny. And I'd say you need the public, the law and the executive all involved in that, I would say. And the tech companies? 
Yeah, I think so. But so one of the things that's been quite interesting of late and something that's definitely changed, we had a piece of legislation in 2016, the Investigatory Powers Act in the UK, which generally mandated technology companies to retain information and all sorts of things. And we started to see technology companies taking on and adopting the language of rights and digital activists, which was fascinating. I still sense that a lot of the reason for that was commercial in that it just costs them a lot more money to do that, eats into their margin and and so on. But yes, there, there is an obligation on, on tech companies. So, you know, a clear example of that would be things like exportation of technology to regimes that might use them that are not in accordance with, you know, international standards of human rights, for example. So I would say there's, there's a definite obligation on, on, on corporations for that. I would like to thank our guests, Ilya Siatica. My pleasure. Amir Kahana. Thank you. And Pete Fassi. Thank you. This podcast was produced by Podcastico for the Hebrew University of Jerusalem Cybersecurity Research Center, 2018. I'm Ido Kainan, and see you in cyberspace. This was Lex Kibernetica. Lex Kibernetica. More episodes are available at the Hebrew University Cybersecurity Research Center site at csrcl.huji.ac.il.